0: We are all driven by searching for something better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, but match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can ditch the busywork. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Listeners of Mindscape will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com Mindscape. Just go to Indeed.com Mindscape right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com Mindscape. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. Featuring a reimagined exterior with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and an interior built with robust materials and integrity, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Its durability has been tested to the extreme while the cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com
1: forward slash Defender. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta SkyMiles Business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park.
2: Yellowstone? Check.
1: Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit You know business.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mindscape podcast. I'm your host, Sean Carroll. We talk about science a lot here at Mindscape. I don't think anyone uh, could avoid getting that impression. But, you know, we talk about other things, too. I I do try to let people in on the details, the real-world details of how science gets done. Uh, It's not always straightforward. It's a little bit less. it's, It's different, let's say, than the press release model, right? Like the way that we learn about science is very often because some scientists have done something And then if it's a discovery experimentally or like a really cool theory, they will have a press release or there'll be newspaper or internet articles or whatever, or they'll write a book or have a podcast, etc. That's not really how science gets done. Science is much more incremental, it's much more gradual, and there's a lot of tools that people use. So today's Subject matter is a little bit different. We're talking about cosmology, but we're talking about specifically the role of computer simulations in cosmology. Our guest is Andrew Ponson, who is a cosmologist at UC London over there in the UK. He has a new book that just came out called The Universe in a Box, Simulations and the Quest to Code the Cosmos. And I love the topic because he talks a lot about the Big Bang, cosmology, inflation, dark matter, etc. But the central organizing principle is how we use computer simulations to do this kind of science. And That's both crucially important because these days you can't, you know, the the theories are so complicated that you can't make very good detailed predictions with a pencil and paper. You really need to use a computer simulation. And because that act, which seems kind of innocent, let's just put it on a computer and simulate it, maybe it's not so innocent after all. I mean, I don't mean not innocent in the sense of guilty. I just mean that Maybe you have to think about what exactly it is you're doing, what assumptions you're making, and what you're supposed to learn from this. And that's what we will learn from listening to what Andrew has to say, especially about, you know, you might think, let's put it this way, you might think that how hard can it be? You take the equations, you take some initial conditions for your universe with some matter and some gravity, put it on a computer and solve the equations. How hard can it be? It can be hard. (laughs) It can be subtle because the map is not the territory, the simulation is not exact, you're going to be making choices along the way about which parts of the universe are important to simulate, which parts you can kind of approximate. And I think that's the the thing that Andrew does the best job at at really uh, driving home. So this is a window into a crucially important part of modern cosmology, but also um, implicitly a window into how science gets done in a very general sense. So it's a lot of fun to learn about that, think about it. Let's go! Andrew Ponson, welcome to the Mindscape Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. We're going to be talking about simulations, right? Putting things on the computer, putting ideas on the computer, and uh, watching them go. Uh, I I can't help but tell a funny story right away, because just as we're talking about this, uh, there was a little Twitter kerfuffle, because there was a story that came out that people had done a simulation of artificial intelligence on the battlefield, and they said the AI was trained to score points by killing people. And it there was a human in the loop saying, uh, you know, don't kill that person, don't kill that person, kill this person. And in the simulation, the report said the AI realized that it would score more points by killing its operators, so that it would never mm. be told not to kill people anymore. <laughs> it, it turns out... That was completely not a simulation, at least not a simulation in the sense that we're talking about. It was basically these guys thought it up, <laughs> which which doesn't quite count. So that's an opening. So what what counts as a simulation in this sense?
2: Well, I, I, you know, I think that's a great question because uh, the book interprets it quite broadly. Um, so, you know, I, I think at the heart of it, a simulation is trying to make a computer reproduce some kind of phenomenon. Now, the phenomenon might be in physics, so it might be the way that the universe evolves, the way that galaxies grow within it, the way that, say, black holes collide and make gravitational waves, or the way that uh, exotic substances like dark matter and dark energy sculpt our universe. It might be all of those things, or it might be something really very different. So um, in in the book, I'm I'm arguing, actually, that we can think of things like artificial intelligence as... Simulations. Now, they're not—they're mm. not, they're not literally simulations of the human brain. They're not kind of trying to uh, reproduce the physiology of what's going on inside our brains. Um, apart from anything else, that's just way too complicated to fit on a computer right now. But they're taking kind of loose inspiration from the way that we we know that brains do work, and they're taking that loose inspiration and trying to use it to reproduce something a bit like thought. right? Um, so, so I think that that, that is a simulation. And, and I think one of the things that I really wanted to do with this book is say that when we do a physics simulation, y- you might imagine, well, that's a much more straightforward thing, right? We, we know the laws of physics in a way that we don't know the laws of thought. Mm -hmm. So so you might imagine, okay, what you just take the laws of physics, write down Einstein's equations, you do some uh, clever maths to fit them on a computer, and you hit go, and then you see what happens. But it's not like that at all. (laughs) (laughs) Because, I I mean, in some ideal world, we might imagine we want to do that. But we just cannot, because the complexity of the universe, you know, it's the the sheer size of the universe its extent but, but also its complexity in the sense of just the sheer number of elements that are interacting and the sheer range of different bits of physics that are are therefore involved it, it means it just that doesn't fit on a computer you cannot fit yeah. the universe inside a computer and and therefore even when we're doing physics simulations there's a ton of approximations and Kind of human creativity and and leaps of the imagination that go into even fitting these things on a computer in the first place. So what is a simulation? In my mind, it's something that's, um, trying to kind of provide some guidance to the way the world or the universe or thought works, but it's not kind of slavishly following some uh, predetermined set of rules or anything. There's a lot of creativity involved in in, in being able to try and draw out that story. You did mention that it was on a computer as opposed to the guy who
1: just
0: thought something up and called that a simulation. Mm -hmm. But we have to relate to the non-astronomers in the audience, the wonderful story of the early galactic dynamic simulation with light bulbs.
2: Yes, absolutely. So it, it doesn't have to be on a computer. You're absolutely right. And um, I tried to kind of trace the origins of where did this idea of simulation come from? I mean, it dates all the way back, in fact, to Ada Lovelace, uh, who, uh, when looking at kind of, but before a computer was ever built, just thinking about the kind of operations a computer could do, she actually came up with the idea of a simulation and the yeah. idea that it could try, you know, starting to reproduce phenomena in the natural world. So it goes back at least that far, possibly, I mean, arguably even further than that, but at least that far. And, and you're right um, that there's, there's this amazing story of, of, of people who uh, tried to do simulations before computers were available, um, in, including uh simulations of merging galaxies. So if you imagine that a galaxy is made up of hundreds of billions of stars, but sometimes two of those galaxies, each with their own hundreds of billions of stars, actually come together in our universe and, and, and smash together. Um, and uh, because of the gravity, they don't just kind of pass through each other. The, the gravity kind of glues them together all, all into one. So there was this eccentric astronomer uh, who uh, tried to reproduce this in a laboratory before computers were available, using light bulbs? So the light bulbs kind of stood in for stars. He, d- he didn't have hundreds of billions of them, obviously. <laughs> I mean, that, that would be that would be impossible. So again, it's like a creative leap. Instead of having hundreds of billions of stars, I'll just have a few light bulbs. I, I think he had a, around seventy light bulbs yeah. or so. Each what light. What bulb- are we talking? Uh, we are talking in, uh, I think, about the 1940s, okay. if I remember correctly. So not that, not that far off the invention of the digital computer, but um, before it was uh, available, certainly before it was widely available. Um, and so inside this laboratory, you, you kind of black out all other uh, sources of light and you just have these shining light bulbs inside the laboratory. And then the kind of master stroke here is to realize the strength of the light coming from each bulb can be used as a kind of proxy for gravitational attraction. So because the intensity of light from from, from any light source, as you move away, it falls off. uh, Like Technically, we're talking about the inverse square law here. So it falls off in a very particular way. Uh, and it turns out that it falls off in exactly the same way as a gravitational field falls off. So if you measure the strength of the light coming from these shining bulbs, then that's like a, a proxy for the strength of the gravity. And then you can use that as a kind of shortcut to calculating gravitational forces. And 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 that way you kind of move the bulbs around in your laboratory, measuring the light all the time. And um, it's an absolutely amazing paper, uh, that, that results from <laughs> this, showing the merger of two galaxies uh, using this technique. It's something that you could not calculate by hand. If you if you tried right. to calculate this right. by hand, you would literally do a a lifetime of calculating to get to this answer. Did he learn anything from that experiment? That was sort of an interesting discovery. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think it was it was unclear whether two galaxies would just kind of. Run past each other, or whether they would uh, merge together. If you if you kind of set them on some kind of realistic track, uh, on mm-hmm. on some realistic collision course, uh, and and the way that they interact, the way that, for example, it, it kind of throws out uh, these things that look like spiral arms. So often, if you look at galaxies, and especially if you look at a, a, an image of two merging galaxies, you'll find that kind of these big arms kind of thrown out. Um, where there's there's more light along certain directions than others, um, it, it showed how those spiral arms could be generated through this process. Now there are many other ways that you can generate spiral arms as well, but um, it, it was an early kind of success for, from a, from well yeah I mean you can call it a simulation.
0: Yeah, that is great. I, I, I love the story. It is absolutely ingenious, like you said. Um, but OK, let's just hop to the present day. OK, we're, we've passed the light bulb stage. Uh, nowadays, we're testing the Big Bang model and its scenario for galaxy formation and structure and things like that. So maybe, I know this is an old chestnut, but let's distinguish between the Big Bang model and the Big Bang, the event at the beginning of the universe.
2: Right. I mean, I guess the, the the Big Bang model is the idea that our universe is expanding, for one thing. Um, that is established beyond any reasonable doubt, that there is just no reasonable way you could argue that the universe isn't expanding. So let's deal with that first. <laughs> um, And it used to be hot, right? That's a big part of the Big Bang. Indeed. So if you extrapolate backwards in time, uh, then uh, by the laws of physics, because as you go backwards in time, everything is closer together in the same way that if you kind of squeeze air into into a bicycle tire or something, you can feel things getting hot. And so if you imagine going backwards in time, the universe was not just denser, it was also hotter. So uh this this is kind of the big bang model is the idea that uh the universe started in some kind of very hot dense state and we have direct evidence for it being hot as well in the form of the cosmic microwave background radiation kind of leftover light from that very hot uh, early phase um however if you go back before that, even further, the question is, well, what happened uh, right at the start? You know, If you just keep going backwards in time, the universe is smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, it, if you just sort of extrapolate that back using Einstein's equations of general relativity, which would seem mm-hmm. to be the right way to extrapolate it back, you get to a, a moment in time where everything was at a point uh, the kind of you know infinite density, all the all the mass in the universe contained in this single point, and that's the kind of classical Big Bang idea that the universe actually started from a point, and then something <laughs> made it expand outwards, and it's been kind of going ever since. That's the Big Bang, the, the the moment that it goes from the point to being an expanding universe. I think, I mean, I. You, you, you'll have your own take on this, but I think most cosmologists these days would not take that as a literal account of what happened at the beginning of our universe too seriously. So, it's, it's, in some sense, we've sort of moved beyond believing in that, in, in, in the Big Bang, but we still believe in the Big Bang model, the idea that the universe was once very hot and dense and that, and, and that it, it started extremely small. Just the idea that it actually started at a point. I think, has been replaced by other more sophisticated ideas about what might have been happening in those very early moments.
0: What if, in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what's happening. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Babbel is the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. What I like about Babbel is its practicality. It's about talking to real people, ordering food, asking directions. You will put it to use. And here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Mindscape. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash Mindscape. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Mindscape. Rules and restrictions may apply. And we kind of don't need to know because what you, well, for the purposes that you're interested in, working within the Big Bang model, you want to understand how galaxies and, and stars and structure form, right? I mean, what's the basic picture there that we're testing?
2: Yeah, so the, the key for, for, for us is to understand what is it that's built the familiar universe today. So if, if, if you look around you, if you look up into the night sky, what do you see? You see individual stars. Um, if you're lucky, you live somewhere where it's dark enough where you can see a kind of the, the, the Milky Band across the sky, which is the Milky Way. If you're really super lucky and you have uh, a, a pair of binoculars or, uh, or so on, and you you know where to look, you can find things like the Andromeda Galaxy, other galaxies beyond our own, containing their own hundreds of billions of stars. So the universe today is kind con- of consisting of. Uh, lots of individual stars, many of them, perhaps most of them with their own planets, organized in a very particular way into these kind of islands that we call galaxies. Our own is the Milky Way, and then look out far beyond that and you find other galaxies. And if you look out way beyond that and you kind of somehow get an eagle-eye view of the universe so that you zoom out so far that even individual galaxies become dots, then everything is organized into something that we call the cosmic web, where the galaxies themselves are not just scattered through space. They line up in some kind of vast, it almost looks like a cobweb-like structure. Mm. So what we're really asking when we do simulations is, is a couple of things. How did that come about? How do our own origins as a human species relate to that? Because there's a kind of surprising link between all of that vastness mind-boggling vastness and our own existence here uh, down on rocky planet Earth. Um, and, and then, you know, on top of that, I think we're trying to ask, how does the fundamental constituents of the universe affect what we end up seeing? So that's when we get onto things like the behavior of stars and black holes and also onto exotic substances that we think have to be out there, things like dark matter and dark energy that we're not seeing directly, but that we think are responsible for sculpting all this. Now, to circle all the way back to to where we started, yeah, you know, with with how does the Big Bang relate to all of this? Well, if you want to run a simulation of anything, then you need to have what we call initial conditions. And... um, you know, I, I use the weather as a kind of jumping off point for, for exactly this reason, that I, I think, you know, you wouldn't expect anybody to be able to produce you a weather forecast unless they already know what the weather's doing today. You know, if there's a, <laughs> if, if there's a storm coming in, then the, the the fact that it's there, it's already there somewhere on planet Earth. You need to know that and then you can use a simulation to figure out how it's going to move. Well, in cosmology, we're, we're doing something very similar. We, we need some kind of starting point. How do we think the universe began uh, in order to work out, well, what happens next and what does it all mean? And so the Big Bang on its own is not a good enough starting point. We need something with more detail. We need something more sophisticated than that. And and that takes you off into the realm of quantum mechanics, you know, what was really going on when the universe was that small, and cosmic inflation and exciting ideas like that. So those are kind of inputs into the whole simulation project. Well, I, I guess let's let's get into the details here a little bit. So
0: I get the idea that we're starting with some initial conditions and then letting them go. For forming galaxies... Do we really need to talk about quantum fluctuations and inflation? Or can we just say, well, at, let's say, the moment of the cosmic microwave background being formed, right? When we, when we see some actual fluctuations in the sky, that gives us enough information to start our initial conditions. Or do we need even more than that?
2: Well, the, th- the thing about the cosmic microwave background is it gives us great evidence for the physical theory of something like cosmic inflation, um, but it doesn't directly tell you what the initial conditions for the universe should be. It's like a it's like a projection. So mm. it's like a kind of it, it, it's we're seeing a frozen representation of uh, what certain parts of the early universe were like. And it's frozen because at some point, the, uh, the, the the photons can start moving on straight lines and they're no longer, the, the universe is not hot enough to have all the electrons around that are scattering them and so on. So at some point, the light from the early universe can start traveling in straight lines. And after that moment, it just keeps traveling until it hits something, which If we're lucky, you know, it might be one of our telescopes, and so, (laughs) and so, and so, we get to see this frozen moment in our universe's history. But it it doesn't tell you all there is to know. To go from that to a kind of three D representation of what do you think the early universe was really like takes uh, quite a lot of physics. So you can't just jump from oh, here's the Mm. picture of of mm-hmm. the cosmic microwave background that's what our uh, our simulation should start from you have to use some smart physics to be able to connect that up with a theory that gives you something much more concrete to start your simulation from and okay that's that is very helpful thank you so it's a little
0: bit of a I don't want to say black magic, but there's a little bit of art that comes in here, right? I mean, the whole idea of the, these cosmic simulations is, sounds like a back and forth between, well, we think this is reasonable, let's simulate it, let's test it against the data, let's go back and figure out whether our assumptions are reasonable to start
2: with. It, yeah, it, it's, it absolutely is a kind of, uh, a, a, it's dangerously circular. In some ways. So I think, you know, on on, on the initial conditions, I don't find that so worrying. Precisely because we have such great measurements of of, of the cosmic microwave background, um, I, I don't think we're too worried about the initial conditions being completely wrong. I mean, there's there's room for okay. them to be refined, and you know te- you can you can go and test. Oh well, if my initial conditions are slightly different, uh, and 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 there are reasons why that might happen. For instance, if the flavor of dark matter you have is slightly different from what we currently expect, that can change those initial conditions. But um, the, the the we're talking about details there. You know, those are yeah. relatively small Got details it. in terms of the kind of overall story that. That, that simulations paint, there is a much bigger elephant in the room. And, and the elephant well, in the that? room... What's that? You can't is... just say that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the elephant in the room is something that we call uh, the subgrid. So it's worth, it's worth just pausing to say what that is. I mean, earlier on, I was saying there is some creativity involved in fitting all the physics into a computer, and the mm. subgrid, in some sense, is, is a way of talking about that. And, and it's called the subgrid because sometimes you know, one way you can do a simulation is to divide up the universe or whatever it is you're simulating into a series of, of cubes, like a, like a, a 3D grid. Mm-hmm. Um, but any computer, even if we're working with the world's best supercomputers, we uh, still have a finite number of those cubes that we can fit inside the computer's memory. And, and then you come to the question, what happens inside one of those cubes? And the simple answer is nothing, because the computer can't go any finer than that. That's the whole point of making the grid in the first place. But if, you, if you're happy with that answer, then you're in big trouble. So I, I, again, if you, go, if you go back to the weather, it kind of yeah. becomes more tangible. So if you imagine you kind of look up um, and you, you, you look up on a hot, humid day, then um, you'll start to see kind of very small, uh, but but big, 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 tall, but small in terms of the kind of overall landscape clouds. They're starting to form. They're, they're actually mm-hmm. forming through a process called convection. It happens on really quite small scales where there's a kind of updraft of hot, humid air coming up from the ground. Uh, it condenses into a cloud up uh, at, at a large height, and then that air cools and starts to come back down again. So that's a process called convection. And it happens on super small scales, way smaller than any weather forecast can actually uh, resolve in its grid. So that's an example of a subgrid process. And if you just ignore that, then you're going to miss the vast majority of thunderstorms. That they're, you, you, they're just not going to happen. Uh, and, and even worse than that, even if you were happy with missing the thunderstorms, the fact that those clouds are forming has an, uh, what we call a feedback on the rest of the weather forecasts. Mm. So if you have a cloud up in the sky, that means the sun's heat is no longer reaching the ground. So the temperatures are going to be different. And once the temperatures are different, that's going to generate different winds. And you know, before you know it, everything you thought you knew about the weather forecast is wrong because you didn't have these kind of uh, small clouds Being generated. So what do weather forecasters do? They add them by hand, basically. This is what we call the sub-grid. They go in and they say, well, these things have to form, Uh, but we can't get them to form using the sort of laws of physics that we started with because they're too small relative to our grid. So we'll just add a rule. We'll make it up. We'll say if it's a hot, humid day, a certain fraction of our uh, uh, our cubes uh, our, um, our our grid cells uh, they're going to start to have clouds in them at a certain rate. and if you're a weather forecaster, okay that 's not too much of a trouble you can you can write that down, you can write down a rate at which these clouds are going to form and you can tune it like you, you have plenty of data at your disposal. You can just go and tweak the knobs until your weather forecasts start being good. You can even kind of calibrate it on old data. You can imagine, go back a week, would we have predicted uh, today's weather better if we'd made some change to our subgrid? So if you're a weather forecaster, I think the idea of the subgrid is quite natural. As Mm -hmm. a cosmologist, we face similar problems. So a similar problem for us would be, say, the formation of an individual star. That's actually really hard to see on a cosmic scale. I mean, we've already mentioned, right, there's hundreds of billions of stars just in one galaxy and then hundreds of billions of galaxies in the observable universe. So the idea that you would ever see an individual star form within a simulation, it's just not going to happen. There's no supercomputer on (laughs) Earth that's powerful enough to do that. But um, if we ran all our simulations and they had no stars in them, then we'd be in trouble, right? I mean, we wouldn't be simulating the universe. So we have to go in and force the stars to form. And um, this is the tip of the iceberg, but it's the kind of thing we're talking about. This is the subgrid. And you can look at it in two ways. One is to say it's exciting. You know, It's a different way of thinking about physics. The other, which you kind of alluded to a moment ago, is, is to say this is dangerous, right? Because... How do we get this right? Well, the answer is we make it up, we look at the real universe, and then we tweak things until our virtual universes start (laughs) resembling the real universe. So, you know, in the final analysis, what, what are we really doing? And you'd guess I wouldn't be writing about this if I thought it was actually a pointless exercise. Sure. I don't think it is, but but it's definitely complicated. It's a, yeah, it, it, it's not a straightforward. Oh, you know, we we type in some code and it reproduces the universe. No, absolutely not. There's some very subtle things going on there that you need to be really on top of if you want to interpret what people are saying about their simulations.
0: I do think this is a a crucially important point. I want to dwell on it, but let's actually back up and set the stage a little bit, because I bet that there are people out there who think that this whole subgrid thing is a very different kind of simulation than they would have guessed you were doing. I mean, maybe the most naive thing following our friend with the light bulbs would be to say, I'm simulating a bunch of points representing individual stars or clusters of stars or things like that, and I'm watching those points move around in my computer simulation. And I think that what you're saying is, that's just not at all what we're doing. We're dividing space up into cubes, and every cube might contain the equivalent of lots of stars. And we're trying to figure out what the effective physics in is per cube, and how the cubes interact with each other.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, we're doing something some slightly in between, I suppose, those those two extremes that you just described. So um, we 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 can do simulations with cubes. They're not always with cubes. Sometimes we're using kind of meshes that can distort into different shapes and so on. But thinking about it as cubes is is not a bad bad way to start. That's how we trust that's how we track something like gas through the universe mm. so there's a lot of gas out there in the universe and we track it in pretty much that way then we 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 do have the, one of these subgrid rules that looks at each individual grid grid cube if you like or or, or whatever mm-hmm. it is that whatever we've decomposed the the virtual universe into and it says is is the bit Inside here, suitable for forming stars, it, does it have the right conditions? And, and the right conditions, by the way, are things like just really dense gas is a, is a good start. And funnily enough, cold gas is also a good start. Can, that, that can be a bit of a surprise because, of course, stars are hot. But to form a star, you first of all need to get the gas to be really cold just so that it can collapse down to a small enough scale uh, that it can actually, right. you know, start up at the nuclear fusion processes and so on. So, very roughly, if the if if there's a sort of chunk of gas that's cold and dense, then it can start to form stars. What we do then is we kind of create what we sometimes call star particles, um, uh-huh. and. So, so this is then going a little bit more back to that laboratory setting where you imagine now, okay, I've got a dot, as well as the grid, I've also got a dot in my simulation. And that dot is going to be allowed to move around. It's going to follow, it's going to basically follow the trajectory determined by um, a, a gravitational attraction. Um, and um, as it moves around, it's going to pass through a bunch of different uh cubes and it can affect the gas around it as as it moves around now one thing to keep in mind we are not talking about one star here we 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 are talking about we we imagine a kind of whole collection of stars have formed and and we're kind of following them as representatives almost of the stars in the universe because Again, we just cannot track the individual stars. So we have a kind of collection of stars moving through the moving through our virtual universe. And they're doing things to the gas as they go. You know, if you if you study stars, you find out that they do all sorts of interesting things in their lives. They they spew out gas through what we call stellar winds. Um, they uh, have magnetic fields. They do other interesting things like when they come to the end of their lives, they explode. A lot of them do anyway. Yeah, and and that <laughs> that, that that puts huge amounts of energy back into the galaxy for, from which the star formed. So we need to capture all of these things. Um, and um, it, it, can get, um, it, it can get difficult to differentiate in one's mind, you know, what should one think of as kind of the real physics and, and what should we think of as stuff that we've made up. But having clarity about that, I think is the key to really understanding what simulations are, are actually doing. I remember being impressed and surprised the first time I learned
0: that even though there are a lot of stars in a galaxy, individual supernova events, when a star really blows up, actually are quite important for figuring out the evolution of the
2: galaxy as a whole. That's absolutely right, and I, I think you, you know the, the realization of how important supernovas are to determining the the whole future of a galaxy. This has come about. Not exclusively, but but in large part driven by simulations themselves. So, in fact, I mean another another story of you know the origins of simulations, which I really like going into in, in the book, com, comes from a character called Beatrice Tinsley, who mm-hmm. she she was actually one of the first people to try and simulate a galaxy on a computer, and this was in the late late nineteen sixties. So by now we are talking about computers more or less as we'd recognize them, but not with the kind of <laughs> the kind of power that we take for granted. These yeah. I mean, are very, very primitive machines by today's standards, but she was able to do some of the kind of physics we're talking about. But she she really stripped the problem back to its bare bones and talked just about the rate at which stars formed inside a single galaxy and trying to understand how is that determined. Some of her later work then started looking at precisely this thing that an individual supernova going off can change the future of a galaxy because yeah. it goes off, it, it, it pumps a load of uh, energy into the gas that heats up the gas. And when you heat up gas, uh, it can even get expelled from the galaxy. That's one possibility. But certainly it, it, it tends to stop it from forming further stars because, as I was saying earlier, gas needs to be cold to form stars. So the, the fate of the galaxy is bound up in these supernovae going off. And, and when she realized this, actually it had a profound effect on all of cosmology because it, it revealed that you can't think of galaxies as these kind of passive things that just sit there kind of being boring lights for the universe <laughs> as a whole, which actually a lot of cosmologists thought about it that way. And, and, and one of the things that that changed overnight almost was the idea that the universe as a whole was going to collapse in on itself and at the end of we've spoken a bit about the beginning of the universe there was this idea in the in the late 1960s that the whole universe would recollapse and you'd have something called the big crunch well that came about from trying to map out how the universe was expanding today it was using the galaxies to do that as though they were just these kind of inanimate things that just sat there and didn't really have an internal life the moment that you added this kind of internal life to galaxies, you had to reinterpret all the observations you were taking, and and, and it kind of led to a complete paradigm shift, where hmm. uh, no longer did the observational evidence say that the universe was going to recollapse, and that paved the way, of course, for for our modern understanding, which is that the universe is probably going to expand forever, uh, and and do so at a accelerating rate. So, I mean, they couldn't have been more wrong, and and it all comes <laughs> back. To how, how you regard supernovae, which, you know, it, yeah. it, it seems like it, it, it seems so disconnected, like these quite esoteric concerns about how a galaxy evolves changes the fate of the entire universe. And, and, and I really, you know, I, I really love tracing the origin of these ideas.
0: This episode of Mindscape is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, a lot of us spend our lives wishing that we had more time to do things. But the question is, time for exactly what? Even if your time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. And therapy can help you find out what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you've given any thought to starting therapy, think about giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and BetterHelp is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/Mindscape today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com/Mindscape. Well, that brings us right to another thing I wanted to get to, which is again backing up a little bit from where we are now, because when I was a grad student, uh, I think that the idea of using gas dynamics and hydrodynamics and adaptive meshes and things like that, these were all brand new ideas, right? This was not—there were still a lot of simulations going on, but they were basically just gravity and dark matter. (laughs) And so those are still very important. Why don't we talk a little bit about gravity and dark matter? I mean, how did we get from the tiny fluctuations at the CMB era when the microwave background was formed to the first stars and galaxies?
2: Yep, you are absolutely right that you know, what you see in the cosmic microwave background is just small differences from one part of the universe to another. Whereas when we're talking about galaxies and the cosmic web that I mentioned earlier, these are huge, huge differences that, you know, if, if you lived today in a completely randomly chosen part of the universe, it would, your, your experience would not at all be like our experience. I mean, first of all, mm. you wouldn't be on a planet. So, so let's just put that to one <laughs> side. Imagine you've got a spacesuit and you teleport to a completely random part of the universe. Well, when you did that, the, the the density around you is going to be almost nil. And not only that, but you won't be able to see any stars because a typical galaxy will be a very long way away from you. And so if you teleport mm. to a random part of the universe today, it's completely different from uh, the part of the universe <laughs> we live in. Whereas in those early times, the universe was much the same everywhere. You know, in, in, in the cosmic microwave background, The differences we're talking about are, what, like one part in 100,000, very, very tiny, tiny differences from one place to another, Um, whereas now we're talking about contrasts of, you know, know, millions, billions, easily. You know, these are the kind of contrasts that we're talking about today rather than these very gentle ripples. Now, something has to power that. Something has to build all of that structure. And I think... one of the most underappreciated pieces of evidence for dark matter is exactly that structure formation process so you know if you for, for anybody who hasn't come across it before dark matter is this extra stuff that we think has to be in the universe uh, that that we can't see directly but that uh, we think is there because of its gravitational effects. And very often when you hear this explained, you'll hear somebody say, it's to do with the way that galaxies rotate or something like that. So if you look at the the way a galaxy is rotating, you find that the stars in its outer parts are moving so fast that if you just add up all the gravity from the things you see, so the other stars and and the gas and so on, that is not enough gravity to keep it connected to the rest of the galaxy. It's moving so fast. It should just kind of fly off like a, like a car that's just kind of cornered and didn't, didn't didn't have enough grip and it just kind of flew Mm. off the track and, and, and now it's somewhere else. So those stars should be lost. That's the kind of classic evidence people give for dark matter. Now, it, it, that that's been criticised for being relatively weak. There, 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 there are, it's a kind of relatively weak argument. You can find ways to get around it, but I think you know the really compelling evidence for dark matter is when you contrast something like the cosmic microwave background, um, and the universe today, because something had to build all of these structures. And that takes a huge amount of force just to move everything far enough to build these kind of structures out of the early universe. And the only way you can really make sense of having that force available to you is if there is a huge amount of extra stuff. In other words, dark matter that is is pulling gravitationally but that otherwise is remarkably elusive, that we, we can't see it directly. We don't kind of feel it directly, even though it, it's kind of passing through us here on Earth. Um, um, that line of evidence to my mind, uh, when you kind of put all of these things together, is the strongest line of evidence for dark matter actually being a real thing.
0: But of course, what we want to do is compare that idea with something like modifying gravity, right? Do you, do you and the people you hang out with doing these simulations take modified gravity seriously as an alternative to dark matter?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, we, we do. Uh, however, we don't work on it ourselves. So, so, the peop- so most people working in simulations right now are working within the dark matter uh, paradigm. And the reason for that is pretty straightforward. It's been a very predictive paradigm. So what I'm talking about, about this structure formation process is not something that was used to kind of, as, as, as a kind of starting point, and then we go, oh, what do we need? And then we kind of make up dark matter. It wasn't that way around. So if you look at something like the cosmic microwave background, even the particular ripples you see in the cosmic microwave background, and then the way that those grow, All of those things are predictions from the dark matter paradigm. The dark matter paradigm really grew up in the 1980s, I guess. And and during that time, a kind of combination of some theoretical calculations and some early simulations really started to make clear just how powerful it could be. But it started from the dark matter hypothesis, which had been invented, it was motivated by the kind of things like the spin of galaxies and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then it it came to the kind of predictions for the cosmic microwave background and predictions for what the structure of the universe looked like. Um, So it is a remarkably predictive paradigm. And to me, that makes it a very attractive thing to work on. I think if you contrast that with modified gravity, modified gravity has not been predictive. It has tried to explain things. It's tried to say, well, instead of having extra material to generate that extra gravity, what if you just change the laws of gravity themselves? Um, and you know, certain observations, it can explain pretty well in that way. But it has never made a prediction that has, has turned out to be accurate. And for that reason... <laughs> Um, it's just to, to my mind, it's not an attractive thing to work on, and I think a lot of simulators feel the same way about it. It doesn't mean it 's wrong, right I, I I'm always at pains yeah. to point yeah. this out. We are not saying dark matter is right and modified gravity is wrong. We're saying we have finite resources, we have finite time, we need to choose what to work on. This seems like a better line of inquiry until we actually find dark matter in the lab, we can't be sure we're right um but it just it just seems more promising such
0: a responsible scientific attitude that you have i don't know if you're going to get very far <laughs> in this world like that not <laughs> in the, in the public relations world but good i mean i'm 100% on your side about this but let me just play one little bit of devil's advocate here if if we had an advocate of Mons, of modified Newtonian dynamics, right, uh, Milgram or one of his uh, the people who think that he 's on the right track, I think what they would say is, sure, we don't have a full theory, we don 't make all the predictions, but what we do have is an explanation for the particular features and the phenomenology of galaxies you know where the dark matter is in galaxies how the rotation curves look you know the you know, the the, uh, the implied amount of mass that you get etc so do you does the dark matter traditional paradigm is it able to explain those features yet or is that just
2: something where we say well someday it will be but we're not quite there yet Yeah. So I think I, let me answer in two parts. So I think they, they would make exactly that point. Um, However, if you look at the way that the observations are treated by the modified gravity community, and now perhaps I'm getting into more controversial territory, but I mean, I think the the, the risk is that they tend to focus on particular observations uh, rather than try to explain the kind of full gamut of observations that we actually have available to us. Now, that's a dangerous game to play. Now, arguably, you have to play that game sometimes because you have to focus your work in just the same way that... I was talking about a moment ago. But I think that th- there are there are many observations that modified gravity really struggles with, as well as some observations that it makes some sense of. Uh, and, and that's true even in the galaxies world, right? So even if you um, accept that you're going to focus on galaxies, even then there are a ton of observations uh, which modified gravity really struggles to explain. So... Um, I I think, for for me, that's an an important point. Um, As to, does dark matter explain the same set of things that modified gravity can explain? I mean, to first order, to a first order approximation, yes, it does. Um, so it certainly explains, for example, the the overall kind of shape of uh, galaxy rotation curves. For instance, this is a big a big thing. You know, you measure mm-hmm. how quickly is a galaxy rotating as a function of radius. Dark matter does a good job of, of of explaining that. However, there there is a criticism that in dark matter, this is a kind of emergent phenomenon. The, 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 way, the particular way a galaxy rotates is something that emerges from the underlying theory rather than something that you predict from, directly from the theory itself. You need to run simulations to be able to make that prediction, really, with, with cold dark matter. So, the, so, so it, it's not necessarily quite so clear a priori why cold dark matter produces the kind of rotation curves that it does. Um, so, so, I think you know there is an argument to be had around that, and I think another thing that the modified gravity community might say is it's, it's also unclear why there's so little scatter on some of these observations. That in modified gravity, every galaxy essentially should behave roughly in the same way with respect to its um, rotation, r- rotation, whereas with dark matter because the amount of dark matter can be different, um, especially you know, how how it is distributed through a galaxy can be different from one galaxy to another, you're left sort of having to explain, well, then why is it that all the galaxies sort of seem to have such similar phenomenology? Um, why is there not more variation? And I think that's an interesting... To, interesting discussion to to have. I think we can explain that. I think it comes back to Kind of feedback things that we were talking about about right. the way that uh, you know we were talking about specifically about supernovae, but that 's not the only one. There are many feedback relationships where a galaxy, if it has too many stars, for example, then uh, it's going to start having lots of supernovae that's going to expel gas, and that means it's not going to form as many stars in the future. There are other feedback mechanisms in addition to that relating, for instance, to black holes. We, we know that there are supermassive black holes at the center of most, perhaps all, all galaxies. and um, And they also have a feedback relationship with the galaxy and the dark matter around them. So I think the answer probably lies in those feedback relationships. But I think it would be a fair criticism to say, that's not fully understood at, at this point of in time. But I would just go back to saying, you know, that is in, within the context of a theory that has been incredibly predictive on a huge range of scales, ranging from the entire universe down to tiny uh, little what we call dwarf galaxies. So, so to my mind, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting question, but it's not the kind of thing that convinces me to go and work on modified gravity.
1: Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know.
0: It's an audio podcast, so the audience doesn't know. But I've been nodding along for everything you've been saying here. I think that this is very much <laughs> on the right track. But I should bring up the other uh, worry that has peaked into our consciousness about the whole um, hot Big Bang gravitational instability leading to galaxies story, which is uh, observations from the James Webb Space Telescope. This is I'm contractually obligated to say this because my office at Johns Hopkins is across the street from the Space Telescope Science Institute. So if I can bring up JWST. I have to do it. And uh, it's a powerful new telescope that has, has apparently found very early galaxies, galaxies that are far away and therefore early in the history of the universe, that are very massive, that, that we would have thought would have taken longer time to assemble. So is this considered a challenge? Is this something that you can account for? Or is this something where you think those observations are probably a little sloppy because it's the early days and hopefully they will go away
2: well i mean yeah this this is something we could talk about for a whole hour i think because this is this is you know, really exciting, cutting-edge stuff, and I think the answer in brief is a combination of all the things you just mentioned. Right. So, <laughs> first thing to say is JWST has just kind of been performing beyond people's wildest dreams. Right. I mean, it is such a fantastic new telescope, bringing the bringing the cosmos uh, to to. It, into into our 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 own our own homes right the pictures that we're getting to see from it Um, and uh, reaching out much further to see the story of galaxy formation much further than has been possible in the past so the first thing i wanted to to say in response to that is just how exciting it is to Mm. to be living through this time where the first observations come from from jwst but let's just rewind for a moment let's imagine the hubble space telescope launch now i was I was young when the Hubble Space Telescope launched. I just about remember the, the, the excitement around it. Um, I would have been at school. I remember it being on the news because it had the faulty optics, which then got got fixed um, by by, a, by an astronaut spacewalk. And and then it started taking just fantastic pictures. Um, so this would have been, what, 93, 94? It's that, that kind I of so. um, era. Yeah. Um, and you know one of the things one of the early pictures it took was something called the hubble deep field so the the plan here was to point hubble for i think around a, a week or so at a patch of the sky that had was was not known to contain anything just nothing of, of any interest, which sounds a little crazy, but the idea was build up <laughs> sensitivity by by pointing this incredible new telescope at just one patch of the sky for that kind of very extended period and see what's there. And what was you know after that had taken place and it was beamed back and 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 people recreated the picture. We got a kind of iconic picture of a kind of a. Uh, 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 empty space with a whole series of dots and swirls in it and basically everything that you see in that picture, and you can easily go and see it today, right? You just Google this thing Um, is everything that you see is a galaxy that's far, far away and um, this was an incredible new view at the time of the way what was then thought to be the early universe uh, was, was evolving and it was a catastrophe for simulators, <laughs> a total catastrophe, because the kind of um, predictions that had been made, such as they were, were that if you did an exercise like this, it would actually be full of quite bright, large galaxies. That this was, despite the fact that people knew about the way that the the uh, universe had been uh a building building up its galaxies through the uh gravitational effects of dark matter all the things that we talked about you know the bare bones of that were known at the time but the simulations were just getting the details wrong and the details of feedback we keep coming back to it this 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 subgrid and the way you you the way you calibrate that and get All of those details, right, about when do stars form? How do they form? Do they form clumped together or in kind of spread out? All of these kind of things really matter to be able to go from the bare bones of the scenario you're talking about to the kind of detail of what will you see with uh, a a particular telescope. So that leap that took place in the mid 90s, um, it, it was on the face of it really catastrophic. For um, for the dark matter paradigm, because the predictions that had been made were way off, but but very quickly people realised what that was telling them. It was it was telling them that they hadn't been um, they hadn't been treating the way that stars form correctly. This needed to be revisited, and a lot was learned through that process. Um, and I suspect what we're seeing with James Webb is some a very similar process beginning. Where it's going to tell us stuff, uh, we are going to learn new stuff about the way galaxies form. But it's it's very premature to jump to any kind of headline that says this puts the overall story in jeopardy. Got um, it. It doesn't. It 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 throws up interesting challenges, but as things stand, it doesn't put the overall story in jeopardy. And probably some some combination of improving the simulations and um, refining uh, the the way we treat this data from telescopes, getting getting better data from uh, JWST and in particular getting more spectra. That's where the light from these galaxies is broken down into its different component colors. So all of these things I think are going to get to a much more measured consensus at some point. Uh, Now, if the challenge is seem insurmountable in a couple of years from now, then we might be having a very different discussion. But when you have a new technology like this, it just takes time to integrate what it's showing us. And and I think I, I, I just say one more thing on this, which is this is obviously treading quite a delicate fine line, because on the one hand, hopefully what I'm saying is reasonable. On the other, you might be thinking, well, hang on a second, this isn't how science is supposed to work. You don't get to revise, <laughs> you don't get to yeah. revise your predictions after you've taken the data because you went, oh, uh, well, come on, it was complicated, you know, we didn't know. It, so I, I think we have to be very aware of treading that fine line. Um, it, the, there's no getting away from it though. The universe is a complicated, messy place that we cannot fit inside computers. The way to test our understanding is not. By um, building a, a, a telescope like JWST that takes us into totally new realms. That pushes forwards our understanding to a new level. And so it's incredibly important. But the way to test our understanding is rather more subtle. And it involves kind of finding: okay, if we if we're predicting something about uh, how galaxies form, can we find a, a kind of corollary, a more direct corollary of that, that we can go and test? this is the kind of thing that we try to do um, where, so for example, you know, we think something like our Milky Way galaxy was built out of lots of tiny little chunks that would individually have been very, um, very dim, but they, they have to be out there. Um, and, And so if we look, if we look back into the distant universe, we can start looking for those little chunks of galaxies, things like that, which are kind of direct corollaries from the, um, from the picture that we're painting can be used as tests. Um, Something like this kind of major step into a a whole different epoch of the universe's history is much harder to use as a test. And I think you have to expect there will be some tweaking to what we're doing. And and, and let's see where we are, like I say, in in a couple of years. Okay, so is it fair to say the
0: short version is... These are important results that we should pay close attention to and be open-minded and willing to change our views if necessary. But right now, no reason to really worry about the overall validity of the Big Bang model.
2: Cor- correct. Yeah. Right now, there's nothing that would really throw that into doubt. I think though there could be, you know, if if some of these things persist, and we persist in, in, in not being able to explain how such big things came about and so on. So I mean, it, it's not that there cannot be anything that would make us start doubting the picture that we're painting. But right now, we're just not there yet. I found a great article online
0: about this this issue of the early galaxies uh by Evo Lobb. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he's an astronomer, and, and his way of putting it is that you know the most natural way of thinking about this is it's it's not necessarily something that these massive galaxies at early times exist but are rare. That 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 what we're missing here is not a major feature of our picture of galaxy formation but that there's a fast track for the one percent uh that if you're really in the right place at the right time you can make a, a more massive galaxy than we would have expected
2: that's absolutely right i mean that could be part of the story so that that then starts to come down to you know what data is available so far from something like uh so something like JWST and of course inevitably because it's only been up <laughs> for for a short while um it just doesn't have a kind of representative survey of of what the universe yeah. really looked like at these early times um so that will also come and that could play a part in explaining what's what's going on here i mean it's it that it's super interesting because it could also connect to with the origins of supermassive black holes so this is the very massive black holes that we find at the center of modern galaxies, I think one of the big question marks for galaxy formation as a field is where did those supermassive black holes actually come from? Because it's actually very hard to figure out how do you grow black holes quickly enough? If you imagine Mm -hmm. just creating what we would call a small stellar mass black hole. So, I mean, this is something that would be a few times the mass of our sun. So it's huge, but but small by comparison to these supermassive black holes that are millions or even billions of times the um, the, 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 the mass of our sun. So how do you get... From, from one to the other. How do you start from small black holes and get these absolutely huge million or billions of, of times larger black holes by the present day? I mean, we have ideas, but that's a very hard thing to do. And it, it may be that all of these stories are kind of bound up together in some way, which is going to make the next you know, 10, 15 years very exciting because we have you know, uh, new gravitational wave facilities uh, on on right. the horizon, on that kind of timescale, where n- so we'll not only be able to see what's happening to galaxies at very early times in our universe, we'll in some sense also be able to feel what's happening to galaxies at very early times <laughs> in our universe with these very sensitive um, gravitational wave detectors that will be able to feel the gravitational waves coming from the the early population of black holes. So so I think. You know, the, the 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 long term for all of these questions is going to be one of piecing together evidence from many different lines and seeing how we can get it to hang together rather than any single uh, piece of evidence being definitive.
0: I think that maybe there's a question lingering in people's minds here, like, why is it a question how the black holes form? Aren't you simulating what happens? Shouldn't you see them form? And I take it
2: that this goes back to that subgrid problem. It goes exactly back to the subgrid problem. So if, if you imagine where does a black hole come from? Well, a, a, what we call a stellar mass black hole uh, is formed at the end of the life of a star. So if we can't actually be sure about how stars form, then we can't actually be sure about how black holes form. And it gets even worse than that, actually, with black holes, because black holes, you know, the famous thing about them is anything that falls into a black hole stays in a black hole. OK, well, Hawking radiation and so on. But that's, a, that's a, like a much a much longer term thing when you start talking about Hawking radiation. So, you know, so the, the, the main thing about a black hole on, on the kind of uh, typical timescales we're talking about is anything that goes in stays in. And that means that a black hole can grow. So it's not just that you form a black hole and it stays that size. Uh, It actually grows over time by kind of eating its surroundings. And yet again, we're talking about the subgrid, because you you, you can't actually see an individual black hole and its surroundings. You have to make some informed speculations about how fast could it eat gas from the big cube that it's sitting inside. Um, and not only that, but then it, that generates energy, that process of eating the gas. What happens to that energy? How does that interact with the gas that might otherwise have been eaten? I mean, maybe the, the energy from, from eating one bit of gas can blow away other gas. I mean, it becomes extraordinarily complicated. And all of this has to be handled in some sensible way. Um, but yeah, you, you, you can't sort of just zoom in to a simulation and just see this happening. I guess I would be remiss in the modern era if I
0: didn't ask whether there was room here for AI and uh, deep learning models
2: to help us with some of these questions. I mean, pe- people are definitely looking down those lines. The, the the exact way that we use deep learning and AI in astronomy and cosmology is evolving incredibly fast right now, um, and and I think you know one thing you can imagine doing is you can you can run a very detailed simulation of how does a black hole eat some gas. Now you, if if you want to run that detailed simulation using all of the physics that you think is relevant, then you can't simulate the rest of the universe, right? That's that's at the heart of the problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but if you if, if if you want to, you can take, you know, your computer time and use it to do that. Now so a possible thing you could do is is subject a black hole to lots of different conditions. And then get a deep learning model or something like that to to try and predict based on, you can can, can be trained on those detailed simulations you run. And then you can try and use that to predict what a black hole does. I mean, in in some sense, you know, it's not that different from what we're doing already. That Mm -hmm. what would the machine learning learn? Well, it would learn some kind of set of approximations to what a black hole is supposed to do. That that's what we're trying to do as humans, and then yeah. we're coding those in <laughs> into our subgrid. So it it's 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 a way that you can perhaps kind of digest more information and uh, and and bring that into the simulation. And it's definitely something that people are investigating, you know, with with a lot of energy. But to, to my mind, you know, the real excitement in AI is somewhere slightly different. So to, to my mind, you know, first of all, AI to my mind is a simulation. So that's why I end up talking about it in the book. It is a simulation of thought. But what we have right now in the AI landscape is we have things like chat GPT, say, which you can go and ask it a factual question. And if you're lucky, it'll give you a factual answer. Or if you're unlucky, it's going to, it just makes something up. But, you know, it's, 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 it's impressive, but it, it's kind of got a, a fairly fixed corpus of knowledge. That's one, that's one kind of segment, if you like. And then on, on another part of the, the AI landscape, you you have the kind of things I was just talking about, where you train models to do quite specific tasks, like mm. predict what should a black hole do within a galaxy or something like that. Now, the question is, how do you start bringing those things together? How do you start getting AIs that not only make predictions, but explain those predictions? And Mm -hmm. and even more than that, they don't just explain them. They link them to the existing body of knowledge. So imagine for a moment you had a future AI that somehow, it it didn't just study your black hole simulations and make predictions that you could use elsewhere. It actually explained what it's learned from those simulations and started talking to you like a physicist, well, now you'd be somewhere very interesting, possibly somewhere frightening. I mean, maybe we're yeah. going, to be, uh, <laughs> going, going to be putting ourselves out of a job. But I, I think, you know, you, you, can, you can go towards that goal um, right now. You can start making steps towards that goal. And I think that's an incredibly exciting area to, to to be working in. And we're trying to do that with respect to, you know, the overall formation of structure in the universe. Because right now, you know, our explanations for how structures, structures form in the universe tend to consist of saying, well, you have the laws of gravity and you have dark matter and then you program them into a computer and you hit go and here's what you get. Um, and if you could, if you could, Start building on that and actually creating explanations for why. I mean, to go all the way back to to your question about, you know, why does regularity emerge in galaxies that makes it look like modified gravity? Hmm. Could we start using AIs to 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 help shed light in that area? I mean, I think maybe we could, but it's a it, it's difficult because it's having to bring together these rather different takes on on AI into a kind of common framework
0: i'm remembering now only just now that we're having this conversation that i gave i was invited to give a talk at an aps meeting back in 2006 so ancient history now on the future of theoretical cosmology And I remember making um, somewhat tongue-in-cheek predictions for, you know, when computers would start replacing graduate students, postdocs, professors, (laughs) but I forget, I've lost my uh, track of exactly what those predictions were, so I think I'm safe. Hopefully it was not recorded. But, you know, never 100%, I think, but maybe a lot of the dirty work that we do as theoretical physicists will be able to be offloaded
2: to our computer friends. I think that's I think that's possible. And I I think, you know, we we have to tread with care here. I mean, it, it it's clear that we are entering dangerous territory with AI as a whole. And it throws up a bunch of ethical uh and practical uh dilemmas that that mm-hmm. we have to look at very carefully as 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 we do this. You know, even as physicists, it's not like um we are trying to develop models that are going to completely change the world, but we are contributing to that overall landscape of AI and so I think we we do have to take a kind of responsible attitude towards this um but but yes, I think that there is a role to be played. you know it would be it would be crazy to try and shut ourselves off from this. There is a yeah. role to be played where it can augment rather than replace what we're doing. And the more we can get it to um, a- actually link what it's doing to a, a broader landscape of knowledge, I think the more powerful it's going to become in in, in those regards. So um, I'm kind of excited. I, I guess like everybody, I'm a, <laughs> a little scared too, um, but yeah. I, I do think there are exciting times ahead. And I'm kind of an optimist. I, I feel like... Um, I feel like we can do this, uh, and uh, we can do it in a way that doesn't contribute to the downfall of civilization. That would be good. I think that all all things equal, that would be good. Anyway, I mean, maybe the, the
0: place to wrap up is some very big picture philosophical questions about what's going on here. Um, when When we talk about simulations, I remember having arguments in graduate school about this. Do you count simulations as
2: part of theory or part of experiment right well i mean i i'm on the fence i think if you look at an individual <laughs> simulation you can yeah. often locate it in that spectrum but i think I, I, what's so interesting about simulations in a sense is is that they they they, they definitely span that divide so i can give you like a, a, a couple of extreme Examples, sure. I suppose. So let's imagine uh, that you uh, are uh, you, you're, you're working at the Large Hadron Collider, let's say, and you are trying to interpret the data that you're seeing from the Large Hadron Collider. Let's go back in time. and Imagine we're trying to pick out the Higgs boson at the Large Hadron Collider. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a there's a, a big problem with doing that, which is just that the the, the Large Hadron Collider does not have a Higgs boson detector, right? You you, you don't have a a detector that actually detects the Higgs boson directly. That cannot be built. What you actually detect at the Large Hadron Collider is a bunch of remnants of a Higgs boson after the Higgs boson has kind of come into existence momentarily and then uh, uh, decayed into a bunch of other particles. Those are the things that you actually detect. So you need simulations actually to figure out what do we expect to see if if the Higgs boson is there, what do you expect to see in your detectors it's not a straightforward thing so those mm. simulations exist they're run they they are a, a, a you know a big part of some people 's lives running these kind of simulations um, so what what is that well i don 't i I personally think that that is uh, it's not an experiment, right? The, the simulation itself is not an experiment. It's being used to interpret an experiment. Um, and so I, it's a calculation, I guess, you know it's a calculation of of what happens under these circumstances. It's not really I wouldn't really call it theory because it's it's not uncovering anything that we fundamentally didn't know before. So to me, therefore, that's not really theory, it's not really experiment. It's more like a calculation. So some simulations are like that. They're, they're calculations. There's nothing wrong with doing calculations, right? That's that's at the heart of what of we course. do as physicists. Um, I so think it's theory. I think it's just 100% theory. I mean, doing do,
0: calculations do really? is theory. Yeah. I, I, I think experiment is collecting data about the physical world. Um, okay. Of course, when you look at your computer screen, you're collecting data about the physical world in some very Indeed. thin sense, like there's a screen yeah. in front of me. But the uh, I think that the we should think of I don't care that much if people want to disagree with this, but I think that simulations are just tools for being better theorists, for making predictions on the basis of our theories.
2: Okay, so let me let me let me try arguing back against that. So I yeah. I think you know okay that's arguable for the case of the, the the Higgs boson we just discussed. did you do you call it a calculation? do you call it theory? Okay, well, it's uh, you know, potato potato, it's kind of semantics right yeah. however, I think there is an argument to be made that in certain circumstances, not the one I just described, but in some circumstances, they're experiments. Simulations are experiments. And uh, I, I I guess this is, is arguing pretty directly against what you just said. But imagine imagine that you uh, haven't discovered the laws of thermodynamics yet. okay. And now mm-hmm. I give you a, a simulation of a large number of particles. And by the way, I actually do this with undergrad classes. So mm-hmm. in a sense, they haven't discovered all of thermodynamics yet. So it's kind of, you know, it's not that counterfactual. Right. So, so you, you, you have a simulation. It models roughly what particles do. Now, it doesn't get every aspect of it 100% like reality. Of course it doesn't. It just imagines particles as little bouncy balls bouncing around. But you can discover thermodynamics in, in in these simulations, you can compress the box, the simulation box. You can kind of apply an external force, compress it and see the things speed up. In other words, you're discovering um, the, the conservation of energy or ex- you're discovering the, the interchange between the external forces and the internal energy. You can do other things. You can discover the, the, the way that substances diffuse through a room. Uh, you can discover Brownian motion. You can discover... All sorts of things inside a simulation. Now, what is the nature of that discovery? That's, that, that, I guess, is at the heart of it. Right. But to, to me, there is not such an obvious fundamental distinction between what you're discovering there, which is like a kind of emergent property of the way things can behave under some circumstances, and what you could discover in a laboratory setting. I, I think that, you know, the counter argument is, well, well, hang on, you know, l- laboratory, that's real physics, right? But the computer is just doing what <laughs> you've programmed in. But, but, but again, you know, it, that distinction kind of crumbles in your hands if, if you really try to make it. I take another example, like um, say I'm, I'm, I'm working for an airplane manufacturer. I want to know how is my aircraft wing going to perform? I can, I can make a scale model of it and put it in a wind tunnel. Um, that's an experiment i 'm sure you agree, mm-hmm. or I can make a digital version of it and put it in a virtual uh, environment um now, why is the latter not an experiment i mean it 's got some approximations in it that 's for sure, but then so does the wind tunnel. The wind tunnel has approximations it 's perhaps scaled down it has a particular type of flow it has walls which is not going to be which are not going to be there when you fly your actual aircraft so so I, I, I've always found that the more you try to examine, uh, the more you try to say, you know, simulations cannot be experiments, the, the more you question, well, if, if that's true, then what is, what is an experiment if a simulation can't be one of them?
0: I think that the answer is that the experiment tells you something about what nature does, not something about what your theory predicts. Now, if your theory is right... That also happens to tell you something about what nature does, like if you do a simulation of little gas molecules, etc. But the point about that simulation of gas molecules is that you might discover the laws of thermodynamics, but then you might go out and look at the world and find that the world doesn't act that way. <laughs> and you can't do that without collecting real data.
2: Yeah, but I, I I, don't know. I mean, experiments are rather like that as well, right? I mean, you, you might, you have to make some kind of controlled conditions you make a bunch of assumptions in how you set up the experiment what you think are the relevant things to control so so that you know experiments are laden with theory at some level you you have sure. to decide what are you doing what are you controlling what are you measuring what do you have to control for all of these things depend on theory and then yeah you might go out into the real world and find hey whatever i based on that experiment doesn't appear to be true I think, honestly, the same thing is going on in simulations. And I mean, the thermodynamics example, I give it precisely because it it, it isn't right, right? It's not doing quantum field theory to figure out wh- what the particles mm. really do. It's based on a very naive idea about what the microphysics world might look like. And yet, the, the, the macrophysics that have emerges the laws of thermodynamics that emerge from that are empirically correct um so for emergent phenomena i feel like simulations you can regard them as experiments you have to be aware of the limitations but then you have to be aware of the limitations of an experiment as well right so it it, it's it's just it's not obvious to me how you draw that line
0: well, that is, that is perfectly fair that it's not obvious, and, and uh, that's why it's an interesting question. But, okay, final question then. As a simulator of universes, literally, can you imagine a day when you or your successors are going to simulate people in your universes? And that's going to lead us to
2: an obvious next question that I will let you fill in. <laughs> right. Yeah, so um, the short answer is no. I, I think as a simulator of universes, we have n- zero motivation to simulate people inside those universes. Just zero. I just cannot imagine why would you want to do that? Um, and maybe we, we can circle back to that. But just to, to flesh out, you know, you were saying the next question is obvious. And indeed, yeah, I mean, do do we ourselves live inside a simulation. And and this is a discussion that's been been kind of ongoing for many years now, um, based on, on a number of people's thinking. But I guess Nick Bostrom, I think, was on your podcast some time ago, in mm-hmm. fact. And, and Nick Bostrom kind of distilled this down, I think, um, to to a, a, a very neat set of ideas. So he, he sort of set out a series of postulates, one of them being, we're going to want to continue running simulations that get ever more detailed, um, and sort of, if you, if you follow these postulates, there is a logical conclusion that uh, we ourselves quite possibly live inside a simulated universe. Um, so I I have no um, arg- argument against Nick Bostrom's uh, kind of logic. I think the logic is fine. However, I think uh, where this falls over is first of all in assuming. Well, Nick Bostrom doesn't assume, but some people, when they're describing it, do assume that we are going to want to make ever more, more and more detailed simulations. So I think that mm. assumption is probably incorrect, um, mm. as I was just saying. Um, so, so I think you know, once once that assumption is swept away, then we no longer have the simulation hypothesis looking as strong. Um, I think there's also a second. You know, there's 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 a second sort of practical layer to this. That if you wanted to simulate the universe perfectly, then you can count the number of uh, bits, or, or more technically qubits, that's required right. to do that. It's a stupendously large number. It's something like uh, ten to the one hundred twenty-four. I think um, that's what's required to simulate the whole universe. And how can you do that? Well, it turns out that you would need to use the whole universe to build your computer. Because if the whole universe takes ten to the one hundred twenty-four qubits to uh, describe, then that's what that, that, that you need to use all of those qubits to describe a universe. So it, it becomes circular, right? I mean, you can't you can't do a perfect simulation of the universe from within the universe itself. So then you can say, well, maybe the you know the simulation doesn't have to be perfect, and so on, and that leads you down ver- various routes, and you can start arguing about what would what are, what are we really imagining these future simulators are doing you know why are they making this simulation that seems to be so incredibly detailed and stands up to all of these tests uh, but but where where in reality it's a sort of hoax of, of some sort. Mm. And that's, that's where you end up with the simulation hypothesis. It's a basically conspiracy theory territory. And so it's, <laughs> it's deeply uncomfortable for that reason. But I, I think, it, it obviously, just because something's uncomfortable doesn't mean it's wrong. But I, but I think, to, to my mind, the way out of this is to recognize it's not at all obvious that you want to carry on running simulations and, 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 and ever more detailed simulations. But at least for a little while, you're going to keep wanting to run more detailed simulations
0: than you have right now.
2: Absolutely, yeah. For, for a while, <laughs> you, want to, you want to add layers of detail. Um, but there, there's another interesting you know, angle on this, which is as you add more detail, the simulation gets more powerful in certain ways. But in other ways, it gets less powerful. This is the, There's a kind of paradox in the heart of this, which is that one of the ways we really learn from simulations is to do counterfactual things. So an example would be, let's simulate the universe, but let's stop all the black holes from forming or growing. Hmm. And let's see what happens. And, and we can do that exercise. And the answer is you get galaxies that look completely wrong. So, so it reveals a, a really deep interplay between the lives of Galaxies and the lives of black holes, which is which is really exciting, and, and yeah. connects to the things we were talking about with JWST and future gravitational wave observatories and so on. That ability to go in and just switch something off is tied to the fact, the very fact that our simulations are so crude. You know, if the simulation just did everything all by itself, then there wouldn't be a, like a switch in our code where we could just switch black holes off. Because they are an inevitable consequence of general relativity. So you, you you wouldn't be able to do that. And and so this is an example of what I mean when I say there's a there's a paradox where as you make simulations more powerful, in some sense they become less powerful at the same time. And and that's why I don't personally think you just want to go on adding more and more and more and more detail to simulations. They, they will get more sophisticated over time. But I think there is some point at which you go, you know what, we just, we, we're going to do better simulations and cleverer simulations, but they're not going to just have more and more layers of detail. Okay, that's very, actually a very interesting
0: point. But I, I'm looking forward to what happens next with even better simulations and comparing them with even better data. So Andrew Ponson, thanks so much for being on the Mindscape podcast. Thank you.